It's the 87 Precinct Podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today we're looking at book number 49, the final 87th Precinct tale of the 20th century, no less, and it's The Big Bad City. My name is Paul Abbott, and I'm joined, as you might expect, by my colleagues Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello. And Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And uh, we're glad to be back together after a slightly longer break than we expected between episodes. Uh, You can call it our summer holiday if you want. Uh, I mean, no sooner had we been allowed to get together again in person than... Well, the truth of the matter is I sort of became unwell. And I'm not frightened to say that, although I've got some physical matters still ongoing, still being investigated, it was really a sudden and quite severe change in my mental health state, which put everything on hold. Uh, And it was quite a struggle in a time that was already quite difficult to cope with. So I just wanted to be honest about that with everyone. And talking to friends and family, engaging with people like you, our listeners online, has been very, very helpful for me. And, you know, if you are struggling, make sure you talk and find your way to help. I know it can be difficult. I know I've got a way to go. But people are kind and there is help out there and I hope you're all well as I think we're all okay at the moment I'm certainly feeling a lot better now than I was last month anyway so it's good to be back as we sort of enter the well it's funny but on the 49th out of 55 it it does feel like the next book will be like the start of the the home stretch doesn't it really I think it does yeah new uh, century and all that yeah millennium But on to much better news, as you may have seen on our social media, that one amongst our number is now a published author. So, Morgan Brown, I have in front of me here, in the physical sense, that it's, it's an actual thing. A copy of On Track, The Damned, Every Album, Every Song, by Morgan Brown. What's this all about, then? Well, it's, it's, it's a book. Um, it's a book about The Damned. If, if anyone has, is in any way curious about the works of English punk pioneers The Damned uh, and would like to read some nerd talking in depth about uh, every track on each of their albums in order, then this is the book for you. Yeah. <laughs> but pretty much that's that's exactly what it is. Yes, it's amazing to to be sat here with you, the author, and the book <laughs> as well. It, it just actually a thing in my hand is amazing. Uh, yes, you must be very pleased that you've, it's, you know, the process has happened. You got through it. You got it published. It's here. It's quite exciting. Yeah, it didn't feel real at all somehow until the, the actual book arrived in 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 its physical form. Really, even when it had been submitted and and I, I knew it was coming out, it didn't actually feel like it was a real thing. So it's it's very exciting. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, <laughs> we're we're all very proud of you here. No. And uh, yes, it's going to be a, a oh steve has just done a silent book huffing of, of morgan's <laughs> book there. you know this is as brand new as any of the books we've looked at and got. it should, be, should oh. still be fairly fragrant hopefully do you get to choose the pictures as well uh, more or less yeah, yeah. i think that the uh the chapter the draw them chapter the publishers did um select a few of them i selected some of them some of them are actually taken by me from the backs of records uh, hopefully you can't tell too much which ones uh, uh, <laughs> taken with my phone camera. <laughs> well, 
you've got to do what you've got to do. All look pretty good, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. So have you have you picked any of their albums as your uh, yearly choices during this podcast? Or Ooh, do you know I haven't as yet? Uh, th- we've been going through a spell where... I, if you read the book, you'll understand why <laughs> I didn't want to pick any of the particular right, albums okay. that we, we yep. came across. But no, right, um, yeah. <laughs> there might yet be scope, so we'll we'll see how we go. Yeah, I'm just having a quick look at the contents here and the years attached to them. Oh, yeah, no, test right. out your bona fides about this book. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's just remember the most important thing about this book is that it's got my name in in the dedication. So it there sure, we go. It sure has. It's also got a mention of this very podcast uh, yes. on on the back cover, I think, too. So I'm hoping that that will send some. Uh, curious punks heading in our uh, direction. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's available from uh, the usual uh, Globo, you know, retail sites that you would buy things from, but it's also available from all the various different booksellers, isn't it? It's it's get it anywhere. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how many shops have got it in physical form, but a lot of most mail order places have. Uh, I know particularly if you're in, in London, then uh, All Ages Records in Camden, uh, a very fine shop that does need everyone's support at the moment does have copies. Ah, there we go. <laughs> excellent stuff. So, yes. Well, that's an excellent way to start this because last time we did an episode, none of us was a published author. <laughs> this time, one of us is. Next month, all of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get right in. Okay, right. So let's uh, let's get back on track with crime then and uh, return to Isola, the, the big bad city itself. After we first had a quick look at the year 1999, the year this comes out, and um, McBain's activities and the like. Yeah, 1999. I mean, it feels strange now to be doing this like a historical look back at what feels like yesterday, as we've said several times, basically since the 90s began, I think. 1999. Everyone was worrying about the millennium bug, of course, which in the end did absolutely nothing. Millennium Bug, the, the coming of Chris Jericho. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, see, the, was the Millennium Bug about whether a computer could count past to 2,000? Yeah, it seems it, a very yeah. strange it's, thing to be worried about, really, It was the idea it? that it was going to just reset to zero, wasn't it, when it uh, it went past... 1999, <laughs> yeah. Mm. Which would have... Yeah. like you should have better things to worry about, really. And hardly surprising that... The computers could do that. They, they, yeah. yeah, everyone thought it was going to set off nuclear warheads and all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a bit too much people watching war games. Yeah, I remember um, having a book that was one of those, um, what was he called, Charles Burlitz, the guy who used to write about the Bermuda Triangle and such. <laughs> oh, right, okay. and one, I'm sure one of those books was called Doomsday 1999. Fantastic. How the world was going to end in 1999. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it didn't. No. Probably pack this book off to the charity shop in the year 2000, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. What happens if you go home and it's on your coffee table? Yeah, well, I've not seen the triangle for... theory of <laughs> mystery. Well, yeah. I'll be thinking somehow Charles Burlitz has broken into my house during the next <laughs> hour and a half. Oh, excellent. Yeah, yeah, no, that, I think possibly the only things that were affected by uh, the millennium, millennium Bug may have been like cheap electronic toys and things like nah. that. Like maybe you woke up one day and your speak and spell wouldn't work or something like that. But, uh, or, or yeah, I don't know, Little Professor, one of those things. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Maybe the, the, the occasional uh, lower budget alarm clock radio might yes. have been slightly thrown. That you'd bought with um, 
petrol tokens yes. that you'd saved up for for years and then got anyway anyway let's just do a quick summary i've only got a few things from 1999 that are important first of january 1999 the euro becomes the official currency of the eurozone but only in check and electronic form not in cash form that doesn't happen yeah. until 2002 and either way doesn't affect the uk fourth of february uh, it's a new york issue so I mentioned this just because of the crime aspect. So there's an, un- an unarmed man in uh, New York called... Uh, it was a West African immigrant called Amadou Diallo, shot dead by four police officers who were on an unrelated stakeout. Now, I mentioned that simply because we we're about to talk about a book which involves someone being shot dead by police officers who get the wrong person as well. You know, it's, it's not... Uh, entirely figments of McBain's imagination and the reality is often much worse than you know the imagination of it 12th of February uh, Bill Clinton was acquitted in his impeachment huh. you know when when uh, impeachments of presidents were like fun <laughs> <laughs> a laugh almost <laughs> by comparison to things that have gone on since yeah. uh, 7th of April, the World Trade Organization, this is important, the World Trade Organization rules in favour of the United States over Europe in a long-running trade dispute over bananas. All right, okay. What were they arguing about? I have no idea. I didn't look into it. And there was no hyperlink on the page to take me to more information. I just had to take it on, on faith. Yeah, it seems a bit odd, that. I'm fairly sure we don't import American bananas or... America import European bananas. There's not many g- European banana farms, bananas, are there? So, exactly. So <laughs> one can only wonder what on earth he could have been arguing about. Yeah, who knows? We'll perhaps we'll never know. Perhaps Europe or America were, I don't know, trying to sell things purporting to be bananas. And weren't. <laughs> Maybe that's <laughs> what it was about. Wood shaved and painted into the shape of bananas. <laughs> so yeah. Tired snakes painted yellow. I don't know. Anyway, uh, 1st of June, Napster debuts. Wow. So the start of the changing landscape of music consumption, really, things like Napster, um, which I didn't really ever have anything to do with at the time. And There was another one just after that that I think I had, and I can't remember There was things name. like LimeWire and Ooh. Kazar, and I think I used Kazar a little bit, but I was never... What, much for um, piracy, so... Nah, I never got involved in any of that. Um, I, I, I remember downloading a couple of songs just for the uh, novelty, but then yeah. it was just like, all oh, right, well... Yeah, I, I think Metallica told me not to. Yeah, indeed, um, yeah, don't well, download this song. Also, I, I, I just like having records. So. Well, exactly, <laughs> it was just like... You know, took about an hour to download. Uh, a really like low-quality MP3 yeah, or something. So, yeah. You can get the entire Beatles back catalogue on a format and quality that you'll never, ever enjoy. <laughs> so, yeah. But it's, it's, a, it's an important thing in terms of how it changes the landscape mm. of music consumption and particularly how long it took the music industry to react to this, yes. mm. treating it like a terrible, weird thing that, that they wanted to shut down when actually they should have been... Harnessing it. Harnessing it, and it took them ages to... First uh, of July, the Scottish Parliament is officially opened following devolution from uh, from the central London, you know, United Kingdom Parliament. We had a solar eclipse on the eleventh of August, which I remember seeing. Actually, it wasn't in full totality where I was, which would have been Stoke on Trent at the time, but you could see it. I remember the nineteen ninety nine solar eclipse. It was on the Isle of Skye. Oh, right, very, very clearly. Did you see much of it up there? Because that would have been. 
quite. No, I think it was it was worse, wasn't it? The further north you got, curiously, yeah. so it was much right. better in like Devon and Cornwall. I, think, I believe wasn't so. It? Yeah, and on the thirty first of December, Boris Yeltsin resigns as president of Russia, bringing in Vladimir Putin as acting president and. Hmm. Acting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, well. Well, he didn't. And so very long, did he? <laughs> <laughs> Blast from the past. <laughs> yeah, imagine. Right, let's get on to Evan Hunter and a bit of what's going on there. Well, what does he do? So I've got 1998 and 1999 to talk about here. So 1998 sees The Last Best Hope come out, which is the final Matthew Hope novel. We have a short story called Where or When, published in a compilation called The Best of the Best. Uh, Big Bad City comes out in 99. We also have Driving Lessons, which is a short novel, part of the Criminal Records series that Otto Penzler puts out. I recently bought that, haven't read it yet. A short story called Barking at Butterflies is published in a compilation called Murder and Obsession, also by Otto Penzler. And also we have the short story I Saw Mommy Killing Santa Claus, (laughs) which was a gift made available to the customers of the Mysterious Bookshop as run by Otto <laughs> Penzler. So Otto was doing a lot of work at the time with McBain and, you know, getting extra little bits and pieces out there. Is he the man you met in New Indeed York? Indeed he is, mm. yes, yes. And on TV we have, on the 17th of March 1998, the last of the My Town series, the second Japanese series. It's the adaptation of Till Death, 110 minutes, script by Toshio Kamata. Oh, God, I really would love to see those. I really would. A 90s series based on oh, the early books. Such a frustration not to be able to get those. And, I mean, other than that, what was occupying his time around this period was a, a stage musical. So we've talked about how much he wanted to write a stage musical. He always trained, seems to be doing he? that, doesn't he? Uh, well, yeah, constantly. exactly. Can I have a wild guess that it didn't come to anything? Well, let me fill you in. <laughs> So this is a thing called The Night They Raided Minsky's. So Evan Hunter had made the acquaintance of a chap called Mike Ockrent, who was a director they'd met earlier in the decade. And then later on, he asked Hunter to write a book for a musical, which was to be based loosely on a film from the 60s called The Night They Raided Minsky's, which itself was based on a novel from earlier in the 60s, which purported to be about a, a famous raid on a, on a burlesque nightclub called Minsky's by the Legion of Decency in 1925. And the idea by Mike Ockrent was to sort of put a British girl into this New York setting, this American setting, who's looking for some American and somehow becomes involved with striptease and burlesque. So, sounds very titillating. Mm-hmm. But the show got as far as the start of rehearsals. They agreed to stage it in LA and then move it to Broadway. And... You know, for Evan Hunter, this was like one of his big dreams of all time, which was do the book for a successful stage musical because he really does love the format and the idea. And it gets to 1999, and very, very sadly, Mike Ockrent, the director, succumbs to leukaemia. So the plans are all shelved for it, and it moves into the hands of another production company. And by 2002, it's it's you know it's not being produced, and eventually it opens in 2009 with a book by someone else yeah. at the end of it. So mm. so another, you know, that's sort of the last throw of the dice for McBain with, in terms of a big grand ambition, just it was never going to happen. Oh, well. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, so close. Yeah. He must have had like half a dozen 
He had a lot reasonable of attempts, yeah, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, and a few that, you know, like, did get on the stage, but he never managed sort of the big stage musical that he wanted. Oh. He had a couple of performances of plays, but that was it. So, couldn't win there, really. Oh. So, let us turn our attentions to The Big Bad City, which is book 49, as I said, published on the 14th of January 1999, start of the year. And the amazing thing is, we're back to the very first publisher of the entire series. Ooh. Yeah, so books 1 through 18 of the 87th Precinct were published in Perma Books paperback edition, which became Pocket Books. Uh, so that's between 56 and 64. And the original hardcovers were Simon and Schuster from 59 to 64. So now these, certainly the American editions, are now in Simon and Schuster and Pocket Books again. <laughs> so he's talking about things, you know, it's a bit like, yeah, this is what I say about it feeling like we're going on to the final phase. Things seem to be coming full circle. Yeah. Like he's gone back to his original publisher. For now. You know? <laughs> um, in the UK, it's published by Hodder and Stoughton and the New English Library. And, yeah, the dedication's interesting in this one because the dedication says, this, again, is for my wife, Drajishka Dimitrovich-Hunter. But, of course, no, no 87th Precinct book before this has been dedicated to her, except in the retrospective republishings. Mm. But actually what it is is The Last Best Hope, the Matthew Hope book, was the first one dedicated to Drajishka. That makes sense. Which had come out just before this. So they had married in um, 1997 which was shortly after the publication of Nocturne. So this becomes, this is the first 87th Precinct book, which is dedicated to her, but yeah. Right. Yeah, so there we go. We're all caught up with uh, <laughs> with 1999 and McBain and his various um, things. And we get to the Big Bad City, which, as I was doing a little bit of research in this, so Erin McDonald, who you may have heard being interviewed on this podcast, we've referred to a lot, wrote the Evan Hunter, Ed McBain companion book makes a very interesting point which i think is a good starting point for this this book's called the big bad city but it's one of the ones that has some of the least city description in it whatsoever which is very true you know it's an interesting name for this book i don't really get why it's called it any thoughts no it's yeah quite odd really because uh, <clears throat> one of the things reading it is it's less dark and gloomy than most of the book's that yeah. preceded it, which are all a lot more big, bad city. Yeah, mm. it's curious, isn't it? It feels like almost like McBain forgot to give it a title and some sort of office assistant at the publisher's been given the task of thinking of a title at the 11th hour and had just pulled something out of thin air. Because yeah. it's, yeah, it, it couldn't really be less to do with the book and given that quite often these the, the titles are really carefully selected to have sort of multiple meanings and mm. resonances within the book it's it does seem really odd yeah and we know he uses the phrase big bad city quite a lot you know he, he peppers it throughout well a lot of the stories but yeah there's nothing in this that is is reliant on the fact that this is the city and because yeah. you would think with a title like this compared to some of his titles that this would be all about like different bits of the city, oh. the way you know the different areas contrast, or absolutely, the, you yeah. know, but it's it's not at all. Well, yeah, no. well, that's what I mean. It'd be a much more appropriate title for some of the some of the nineteen nineties books, certainly. Yeah, um, but not this one particularly. No. no, so strange title to kick us off with, really. I don't know what I would call it because something it's, to do with nuns. 
Yeah. Oh, nuns and cookies. Nuns yeah. and, that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> nuns and cookies. <laughs> Can you imagine that would be such a such a left turn in his titling of things? <laughs> nuns and cookies. That was so, maybe the first thing the office boy pitched before yeah. uh, they came up with the big bad, the big bad city. Yeah, yeah. I just feel like a fallback title, really. So, I mean, yeah. You read on the the inside of the cover of mine, it just say like the first thing you need to know about this city is that it is big, which reads like the start of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Space <laughs> is big, and but other than that, yeah. Secondly, distance. it is bad. Thirdly, <laughs> it is a city. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. There is there is one section of this where he talks about the fact that the city is like you know, several other cities put into one. Mm. He does use it as a bit of an excuse to make fun of, like, some sort of... Made-up places. In, yeah, yeah, sort of Redneckville-type places, mm. which is quite quite funny, but it's, um, yeah, it's not reliant on that. So we better get into attempting a summary. Do you want to try it, Steve? Oof, right, well, see what I can put together. Well, there's, there are, I suppose, two primary stories out there. There's the nun story... And then there's the cookie story. So which should I start with, really? You do the nun story. The nun story, right. Well, uh, a body is found in a park. I can't remember. Is it Grover Park? Yeah, it's Grover Park. Probably. Uh, Strangled young woman, 20s, something like that. And it takes him quite a while to identify who the person is. And they realise it's a... um, a young woman who then turns out to be a nun, mm-hmm. then spend a lot of the story concerning her speaking to various people that knew her, wide circle of friends, some issues about money, but nobody's really sure. Um, and then the brother ends up getting in touch. Who doesn't? She's not from New, uh, not from Isla, sorry. Um, <laughs> and you realise there's some family issues with dead parents and then she kind of rebelled to become a nun even though she had no previous religious leanings as it were um and then you're thrust into a whole backstory about her whilst being a nun taking a nun sabbatical and becoming a rock star in some terrible name band that then goes on a tour of the deep south and it just all gets quite bizarre for a bit. It, 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 it um, does. And so, yeah, it's a funny old story, I must admit, really. They're, they're um, tipped off to a, a, a left turn into the performing arts by the discovery... Uh, is it Paul Blaney who discovers her uh, uh, implants? Oh, yeah, so she's got like had breast implants that... Yeah, it just seems such a weird, unnecessary bit of plot... As though it's like to titillate, but I don't. I don't think it is. It's just a bit weird. It's just yeah. It's a very interesting. Yeah, it feels odd to call these breast implants the MacGuffin, but they are the MacGuffin that get them into the investigation, mm. aren't they? That that lead them down the. Well, this can't just be a sort of. I think. I think crime been, of of the mm, moment. No, they can't. I suppose they're just kind of maybe uh, included in the story to give her a bit more of a. Mysterious background. Mm. She's a nun, but then she wanted to be a a rock singer, and then and if you're going to be a rock singer, you need apparently, uh, yeah, because enhanced I guess they, boobs. They, they they discovered that whole angle from that because I guess they traced they, they traced the surgeon who, who yeah who, yeah yeah, and then from there it's like oh the manager brought her in yeah because obviously that's the first thing that you do. 
Yeah. yeah, so it just seems a bit of a like that th- that wouldn't really happen because it's not as though she becomes like a a big solo singer. She's just a member of like a a rock band. Yeah, touring like little s- diners in swamp towns. <laughs> it's it's very strange, mm. and I'm sure we'll get round to our feelings again about McBain tackling <laughs> popular music topics. Yeah, he's he's he seems absolutely dreadful at naming these bands as well because he's got a couple of names here and they're just all terrible, aren't they? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get round to that, but let's just let's just uh, park that for a second. So that's the main story. Yeah, yeah and, and Morgan Cookies. Oh, the cookies, yes. Yeah. So at the same time as all this is going on, um, the, 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 the city is also being plagued by um, a burglar who has been nicknamed by the media the Cookie Boy. They didn't think very long about that. They, 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 didn't, they, they didn't think too hard about that. The idea being that um, he, he will break into people's apartments and steal their valuables, but then by way of compensation, leave them a little package of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies, <laughs> which which is lovely. And uh, so that's going on in the in the precinct. Um, and then we we actually catch up with the Cookie Boy, and we 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 see some see sort of him preparing for for a job don't we for, kind of from his p- perspective and mm. um, we catch up with him and follow him on on a job he's been uh, doing this for years and getting away with it and we catch up with him just as everything goes wrong yes very wrong indeed yeah there's quite a lot written from his perspective in yeah. this and he's uh, yeah he you know he, he kind of feels he's got an, a noble art oh, doesn't yeah, he and uh, yeah, he, he doesn't see any shame or uh, whatnot in his profession, and he's quite proud of, uh, you know, what he does, and he, he feels leaving a cookie's part of a, I don't know, like a thank you, or like, yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, he has this disastrous afternoon out, doesn't he, basically, where it all goes wrong for the first time. Yeah. And gluing the whole thing together, the rest of the book together, is a, another subplot, which oh, yes. is the return of Sonny Cole, who was the person who shot Corella's father in Widows and got off with the crime in Kiss, I think it is. Yeah. So how long goes Widows and Kiss then? Because oh, time always seems to stretch out in these uh, books. In the 87th Precinct, time is strange and elastic. Yep, it sure it is. Is. Yes, it certainly is. Yes, well, if we look back, we find Widows was book 43 and Kiss is book 44, so that's 1991-1992. Oh, right, okay. So, I mean, obviously he's not writing as many books as he was back in the 50s and 60s here, so it's, you know, it's the six books ago, really. But for them suddenly to emerge again, or this character to suddenly emerge again with the notion that if he doesn't kill Corella, he thinks Corella's going to come and get him. Because he doesn't know Corella. Corella's mm. the sort of cop who wouldn't do that. Yeah. And so we have a pursuit of someone who doesn't know they're being pursued, and it ends up somehow with uh, Fat Ollie involved of as well, course. because we can't uh, do without Fat Ollie at the moment. Uh, we're sort of about to enter his super heyday, really, aren't we, in the next few books? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, three things going on. The nun story is... I suppose the A plot, the Cookie Boys, the B plot, and then we have you know this glue of this thing from the past happening. And I think that's what makes me feel a bit strange about this book is that if you were picking this up as a new reader, why would you care about this person pursuing this cop? Because you don't know anything about the backstory. Because mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it says he killed his father, 
And but then he also has a load of family stuff with Corella, where his sister is now seeing the the lawyer who oh, failed God. to get this guy jailed. So Steve Carella's sort of mind is all over the place dealing with this. Yeah, he doesn't often do that because he, you know, obviously every book's got aspects of all the backstory of all the characters, but he normally does it in such a way that actually that kind of doesn't matter and he can come to any entry as a total mm. newcomer mm. and he's not particularly a disadvantage but yet with this one a lot of it would be totally meaningless to you really yeah so it is a little different in that yeah and then the big bad city name as well like doesn't really apply to the nun story because most of her story um is not even within the city is it it's like from other parts of the country. Quite a lot of um, the big bad stuff that, that happens with her definitely happens, yeah, a lot further and, south. And, and the Cookie Boy story is probably the least big bad story. You know, it's almost written as a fairly whimsical crime to start with, certainly. Yeah, um, although it ends up being being quite nasty. Yeah. Even, even when it does get quite nasty, it's almost kind of farcical. Yeah, yeah, it's all like, it all happens... Like kind of by accident, doesn't it? Almost, yeah. if you see what I mean. The uh, um, so yeah, it just yeah. seems a bit of an odd yeah. well, collection and name. Uh, I think yeah, talking about the the nun story, um, as we say, a lot of this happens down south, and it happens in flashback. Hmm. So yeah, having taken a sabbatical after joining the church, she goes off to do, to tour with this band, and I think. Yeah, McBain's problem is that he doesn't really understand that bands operate on anything other than a professional level. So, like, they go off and get an agent, they get money to have her uh, breast augmentation. Mm. And, I mean, he doesn't linger particularly over the, the breast thing in this, no. given his propensity for lingering over the female figure in certain books. He actually, in this one, doesn't particularly. It's more of a, a simple fact to create a clue to create. But I don't genuinely think... That especially in 1999, mm. you don't go and say, oh, I'll join a band. I don't know. I mean, it's it's weird. And you, that sort of band, the fact that he sends them off on this set of shows in these backwater places yeah. suggests they are not... They wouldn't be signed up with no. anyone, would no. they? No, absolutely not. It's, yeah, it, it's, it doesn't seem remotely like a realistic sort yeah. of concept of how small touring bands would function. Is that is that him... Put in kind of what he knows about, like musical theatre, for example, which he, I think he does know quite, mm. and then just using those same principles to like, the music industry and just th- theorising that they must operate in a similar or way. Or even just musicians who, who who work in other fields. It's like yeah, the the idea of getting a an engagement in a in a supper club or something. It's like mm. uh, what's the equivalent of that for a rock band? It's like well, you, yeah, you probably wouldn't really get a, a residency in some some little place like on the bayou or whatever no. but uh, <laughs> it's like... no it's all yeah. Uh, yeah it's quite hard to read when you are a musician and you've done tours and you think you know actually that most of the work you do is yourself and it's it's people phoning people oh, this would have been phoning people up rather than emailing although this i think this is the first uh 87 precinct book to actually mention email existing mm. <laughs> So on page 17, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's the type of band that, that, that the character's in, in this, is is not what McBain describes. And he, I, the th- thing is, I know we've got 
worst music industry stuff to come in the books to at least one book to come anyway. Um, oh, and we've talked <laughs> we've talked about this stuff before, but. What's the name of the band? So he, they called the, the Five Chords. Were, were they, they the Racketeers? And, yeah. And, um, so she joins a band called the Racketeers, and they change their name to the Five Chord, which is the worst name for a band I've ever heard in my yeah, life. And I've heard some terrible names. It's not not a great name. And also, if it was going to be a, a band, it kind of sounds like a dodgy, like jazz, uh, like a. A jazz group. Or I was going to say, like maybe like early eighties sort of new wavy power pop. I'm imagining them as like a a band that's been formed in the wake of the knack, um, but oh, right, nowhere near yeah. that good. I don't know. Skinny ties, possibly, possibly. <laughs> but yeah. doesn't he mention like a bunch of grunge people in? in yeah, in, in, they like, aspire to be like Al- REM or Alison Chains or Stone Temple Pilots, and you think? And yet she auditions with like a load of old Rolling Stones songs yeah, and things like that. And they mention Janis Joplin and things. It's like it's, it's a it's an odd hodgepodge of, of different things. Yeah, isn't he's it? he's always on. You know the, the book with all the that rap concert as well. He's always on fairly thin yeah. ice when he and yeah he he does come back to it quite a few times uh-huh. really. But yeah, never his strongest uh, topic. I don't think. No, it's not. But it's it does mean that exactly this doesn't take place in the big bad city. The actual events that have led to the murder of this person has happened all down in Florida, essentially, uh-huh. hasn't it? Which is also an excuse for him to bring in Matthew Hope mm. in a crossover. Which, if like me, us, you haven't read the Matthew Hope books, and you're not going to go and read the last best Hope just for the first link to the Eighty Seventh Precinct, it's a bit of a strange one again. Well, know. I was going to, I was going to ask: Is that the first time that there's been the crossover? Because yeah. th- those characters clearly know each other in this. Well, and yeah. I'm just thinking. Have I forgotten the <laughs> been previous um, yeah. Matthew Hope crossovers? But there hasn't, has there? Well, there has, but it's in the Matthew Hope series. Mm. Oh, right, there so, you go. Right, so that's why it doesn't make any sense in here. Yeah. So, again, so it doesn't make sense for us who've read 48 of the books. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, a bit yeah, peculiar. Why he rings up a retired lawyer at this point, you know, Carella rings up a retired lawyer to ask him to fax tens of pages of information which is just helps it helps Corella, but actually it's a bit of a a get out clause in the plot because he's just he's just basically just if you're reading this not knowing anything about Matthew Hope, Corella's just rung someone up and gone, "Give me a load of information I need," and they've gone, "Yes," and they do. I'll fax you the solution now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Faxes and emails. Wow. It's a new world. <laughs> Dealing with the future. What if a text message is ever referred to? Well, blimey, yeah. We only got up to 2005. It's, uh, yeah, so I don't know. It's it's an interesting one. I think he gets a bit um, he gets a bit Rashomon again because we get the same story told from yeah. different perspectives and we know he's used that device a couple of times. He likes his Kurosawa-esque uh, referencing. Yeah, he's got like the same chapter, like well, half chapter, like verbatim, hasn't he? But just with the character perspectives flipped. The, the story just retweaked um, the first time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, which is interesting because he does play sort of with because it, it pivots on a gender issue. Yeah, which is quite interesting the way that comes across. Yeah. But yeah, I, I struggle a little bit when he's writing about musicians. Um, I mean, he just... Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I make of it, really. 
It's it's an odd one. I mean, if we jump uh, away from that again, because I know we're going to have to jump around on this one to get to the Cookie Boy, <laughs> which I think Steve-O's right. It is played like totally whimsically. Like I think it is, yeah, up it's, to a point. For yeah. this, and and then there's a massive shock sequence, yeah, which I think is probably the best bit of the book. For me, anyway. Yeah, yeah. It, I know I sometimes rattle on about the, the Richard Stark, but it kind of has echoes of the, the scenes always in Richard Stark's books where everything goes totally tits up. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> all, all the characters term, are somehow find it impossible to stop it happening. Yeah. But it, it nevertheless, just tr- like a runaway train. Totally, yeah, everything spirals ludicrously out of control. Very, very quickly. Yeah. And what started as, like, a, uh, a, a bungled burglary ends up with... Two people dying and... Yeah. yeah. It, it sort of goes from Benny Hill to Pulp Fiction in, mm. in like, a heartbeat, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does, yeah. I think that's actually saying that out loud. That's that's quite a good description of it. Right? it yeah. It's, yeah, he's stumbling across a sort of bawdy woman making love to a delivery boy, which is about as cliche a sort of yeah. thing as you can have, to, oh, she's got a gun and it all goes horrible. yeah. But the, I like the, the character of the Cookie Boy. He's like he's in this dramatic moment. Everything, his world, his plans have all gone to absolute pieces. But once it's over and it's happened, he's like, "Well, I'll walk away then. Yeah, I'll, I'll eat one oh, of my own cookies and walk away." Yeah. Oh, I wonder if I'll be on telly. <laughs> yeah, clearly a bit. Uh, yeah, not altogether um, thinking straight all the time, is he? I think. Yeah. yeah. But doesn't doesn't it turn out that he's like a Gulf War veteran as well? Yes. Yeah. yeah, so... But then the other thing that's happening in this book is, I think, at least three times the 87th Precinct gun somebody down, don't they? Well, stuff happens, certainly. So, I mean, like, yeah. right at the beginning, there's, like, a scene in the squad room where um, Felon manages to smuggle a knife into, like, the the prison cage with a knife concealed in his butt cheeks. Yes. In his... In his... <laughs> In his crack, I in think. In his yeah. crack. Um, yeah. And they have to shoot him, and then they they shoot down somebody who they think's the cookie boy, but then it isn't. And then, well, at the very end, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, somebody, yeah, somebody yeah, you're absolutely right, gets, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the media attention, he does hint at the media attention on the police in this book at, at certain points because of the, the various incidents that happen and the various shootings and, and stuff. So I imagine that, yeah, there's a whole other book to be written that would go immediately after this, which would be the amount of questioning and queries from mm-hmm. internal affairs about the what happens with, you know, it's like yeah. it's Meyer and Kling and, and a sort of team kill somebody, Corella and... Brown end up killing somebody. Parker um, and Corella shooting somebody at the start, although I think they survive. Yeah, they seem to shrug it all off very well in this, don't they? Don't know. Yeah, um, yeah it's an odd one, really. Yeah, and I think Parker does his usual very unexpected heroic catching of the. Uh, I think it's the Cookie Boy, isn't he? Who does with a, and it's written in like a. They, everybody can't quite believe it's Andy <laughs> Parker who does yeah. this brilliant pursuit and. Like, uh, yeah, like rugby a, tackles the yeah. um, the fleeing criminal. Yeah, no, it is. It's 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 very good when they they describe that. He puts in just one the most sarcastic a- line. Andy, pa- Andy Parker brackets Andy Parker question mark. <laughs> yeah, 
So I'm just gonna I'm just going through some of the references to things I've spotted in the book. Um, there's a few references to sort of contemporary things like ER. He describes oh, the yeah. paramedics turning up as if they were all on ER in this opening sequence. <laughs> it refers to a, a writer from who was a New York writer called Irwin Shaw, who I know nothing about. We've got a woman called Helen Daniels, which if oh, you're yeah, of our age... Yeah, I had a chuckle about Helen Daniels. Yeah. There's a character in a TV show called Neighbours. Yeah, um, just... I'm sure our Australian listeners will have uh, picked up on that as well. So that was quite hard to take seriously if you've heard of Helen Daniels, who was ubiquitous on British television and uh, at one point yeah. at uh, tea time every day of the week. And lunch times as well. Yeah, indeed, yes. Uh, the coroner in this book is Carl Blaney, not Paul Blaney. I can't remember if at this point we've actually resolved the fact that he's used two different names for Blaney because he does later make them into brothers, doesn't he? What? He explains his own mistake, essentially. Yeah, I can't remember if we're past that point or not, but we've had, we've had Paul and Carl at, by this point as well, both described as like having the same violet-coloured eyes and things. He didn't decide that it didn't try and do the thing of claiming that one of them was the middle name that some people used, like Stanley did with the... Bruce Banner, who he accidentally called Robert Banner, I think, for a little <laughs> while in early Hulk comics. Was he David Banner in the, was was that David, just the TV series? David Banner in the TV series. I think, yeah, he, was, he started out as Bruce Banner and then became Robert Banner for a couple of issues and then went back to being Bruce. <laughs> like, Conan Doyle got very confused about how, like, the... Uh, the chronology and how many times... You have to work out how many times Dr. Watson was married and basically... Yeah, like three or four times in order to be able to explain the yeah. periods of being married and then not married. And yeah, he's mar- not married after he's been married, but then married again. <laughs> yeah, it's well, I mean, you've got to forgive them, I suppose. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. But I mean, especially writing pre social media, now you probably wouldn't be able to get away with it because of the amount of people who would be immediately on your oh, case. Oh, God, yeah. Imagine Conan Doyle's email lighting up. <laughs> Well, yeah, I suppose Conan Doyle just did was always writing, jumping around, yeah. like times uh. as well, wasn't he? So, um, yeah, he probably need one of those Minority Report like <laughs> yeah. wall charts in order to uh, or lots, of, yeah, lots of bits of paper and string between them. Yeah, well, stuff, yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. Yeah, um, I think there's something interesting in here about Corella and his family background uh, when they've got this scene with him and his family talking, but it says. Corella would be 40 years old in October. So suddenly we've got an actual birthday date coming up for the man. You know, so if we take it as read that this is 1999, that this is setting, set in, 1998, 1999, and Corella's just about to turn 40, which makes us all older than Steve Corella, which (laughs) feels very strange. It would also make him about five years old when he was... uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that he sort of pinned him to actually a it's significant bit, birthday. It's a bit odd how he's not aged him a little bit more, because there would be no harm in that. Yeah, but, I suppose if he did age him, you'd be wanting to ask more questions about why he's detective second grade uh, all the time. You, he's clearly a first grade detective, yeah, yeah. and he, yeah, he's never a first grade detective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ollie Weeks is. Yeah. Yeah, so your, your perception of him in those early books, I suppose, I, I would probably think in his thirties, but maybe the maybe he would be in, have been in his twenties then in in uh, yeah. 
Bane's mind, maybe. But I suppose it's a bit like when you watch film and TV from the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s. Everyone seems to be older, older than, than they, they are, actually yeah, are. Yeah, you know, is, lots yeah. of suits and from the age of 14, you'd be wearing a suit rather than, you know, what we'd wear. Well, and I have no idea, but I bet, you know, if, if it's anything like over here, I suppose, like de- detectives were probably retiring at 50, 55, weren't they? I'd imagine so. So, you know, if you're 40, you've not got that long to go, really, maybe. Yeah. But it's interesting. So you didn't want to get them too yeah. in the 40s yeah. in case it was like... But it gives uh, McBain a chance to muse on age as well and about... Hollywood studios not wanting to hire older writers because they have this idea that older writers have forgotten what it's like to be younger, which, again, feels like McBain going, um, why aren't I getting any jobs anymore writing screenplays or something like that? I wonder if the frequent attempts to write about popular music are an attempt to prove that he's still in touch with young people, which, if they are, I can totally see why studios maybe weren't hiring him to write things for the hep young kids yeah quite possibly yeah and uh, it does also give us a chance to learn a little bit more about Corella's family background it turns out that his father's father was an, uh, an immigrant from Italy and the place that they mention in this book they don't mention a specific thing they mention it he came from a village from between Barry and uh, Naples Barry, Barry in Wales. Barry, Barry and Barry, Barry and Merthyr Tydfil was he? Yeah, yeah. In the valleys. <laughs> from Barry and Naples. Next to Snooker Club. <laughs> from Barry and Naples, and actually, if you sort of split the, that uh, that journey in half, it turns out to be Ruval del Monte, which is where McBain's father's father came from originally oh, right. so okay, yeah. makes yeah. sense you know, there's even more McBain and Corella there as well <laughs> and then the usual thing about Corella you know being an American rather than an Italian yeah. stuff which obviously is a theme throughout this as well mm-hmm. oh yeah of course Teddy goes to trial in this oh, one although you don't actually yeah. see the trial for kicking someone in the last book and, and that's just dealt with and then finished and off yeah yeah a, very short and sweet which is another odd one for a, a new reader, really. Yeah, yeah there's well, there quite a few references back in this mm. one, isn't there? There's like references back to the pusher. Um, when they talk about having once um, interviewed someone called Ernest Hemingway. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because they think they're looking for a woman called Marilyn Monroe. Mm, what's she called? Mary Lynn Monroe. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's quite funny because at one point the, the cookie boy's like... Why didn't I, Marilyn Monroe? He says, well, why didn't I uh, get her real name? And it's... Yeah. There was a, there's a Beatles reference in here. Every now and then, though, somebody's replaced, like Pete Best was by Ringo Starr. But that's rare, very rare. And I will say, if I get this edited in time and out tomorrow, that will be coming out on the anniversary of the day that Pete Best was fired from the Beatles yeah. in uh, 1962. Just by pure coincidence, actually, 16th of August. And what else have we got? Yeah, and later on, in fact, there's a bit where, towards the end of the book, after supposedly the success, the successful resolution of the nun story, mm-hmm. Corella and Brown are together, and there's and they're having a drink around the at Corella's house, mm-hmm. and they're just there's references back to tons of the early books. I mean, there's loads of reminiscences. What have I got? What have maybe got? it's because it was like 1999. Maybe you thought you know because there was a lot of. You know, looking back and looking 
forwards well, yeah, in that I year, as I seem to remember. Yeah. You know, so maybe he thought it was quite a, a, a good moment moment to do that, really. Yeah, talking about when Kling was a patrolman mm-hmm. and Hawes wasn't even on the squad, so... Hawes has almost disappeared, hasn't he, really? Yeah, he, has, he hasn't had much to do for a long while. Mm. Yeah, Roger Haviland and... Hernandez. Hernandez as well, yeah. And, and yeah, he was worse than Parker. Sometimes I think Parker is Haviland, come back from the dead, <laughs> which is exactly how <laughs> McVeigh's described it. And then, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, stuff King's about... Ransom. Yeah, King's Ransom in there, Virginia Dodge and the, the bottle of nitro. And then, yeah, it's, it's yeah, Claire Townsend, the deaf man tunnelling under a bank. <laughs> I'll be 40 in October. Where did it all go, Artie? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Having a crisis there. Yeah. No, it's an interesting book, I will say. I think we've had a sort of time. Okay. Pull our thoughts together on it, really, because, as I suggested, I'm, I'm not still... It's enjoyable. Yeah. It is enjoyable. It's less dark than some of the recent ones, and that's always a nice relief after you've had some of the nastiness of the recent books. But it's... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure... What do you think, Steve-O? I think it would have worked better if the nun story was stronger. Yeah. Maybe. Because I think the the other elements of the plot are, are quite interesting, a good way of, you know, kind of explaining the city and, the, you know, some of the backstory as well. But I think the backstory itself requires a little bit too much prior knowledge. Yeah, and the, the nun story just... I don't know. It doesn't seem to hold together very well. Difficult, difficult to explain, really. Yeah, um, a story. So yeah, certainly not the best, but certainly not the worst. Yeah. You know, it's it's an entry with its merits, but um, certainly not one of the strongest. I don't think. Yeah, how do you feel, Morgan, about how this all sort of comes together? And yeah, I, I, I agree with Steve. Really, it, it does have its weaknesses. It, it, it is really enjoyable. I mean, I, I definitely. Um, it was my first time reading it, and I did really enjoy it. it the, the nun story, yeah, it's not great, is it? What What are you going to do? It's I, I kind of I, I quite enjoy the daft bits about musicians that don't make any sense in a in a perverse sort of way. Oh no, I know what you mean. Um, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, but yeah, it does kind of take you out of any kind of realism that might have been forming somehow, doesn't it? Uh, but it's st- still enjoyable. Because yeah, the crime ends up being nothing to do with her being a nun as well. Like, that's a whole... She sort of almost didn't need to be a nun, almost. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an odd thing. It's like um, he'd kind of written most of it and thought, right, where am I going with this? Who who killed her, you know, yeah. whilst the typewriter's still going? I don't know if it's almost like there's just too much misdirection to the point where it doesn't really make that much sense, but... Mm. Um, yeah. I enjoyed the I enjoyed the cookie boy. Yeah, I, I thought that, that. that's 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 a, a decent uh, plot line, and I quite enjoy um, uh, Sonny Cole kind of following Corella and, and learning about him too. It's interesting seeing him f- uh, getting talked into this sort of paranoia about him, and then being really hot for revenge and following him, and gradually sort of almost starting to empathise with him a little bit. Yeah, I quite, I quite liked that. It then. But then it just sort of it doesn't really go anywhere particularly. No, and it, it? yeah, I mean it's it's easier to appreciate that if you know the backstory mm. a little bit. Oh yeah, if you came in, I mean, none of that would make any sense or have really any impact if you didn't if you hadn't read the, yeah, the things the you needed to have read in advance. 
having read those, I, I did I quite appreciated that. But yeah. Um, yeah. So perhaps all a little bit more rewarding for the long-term reader yes. rather than a new reader, perhaps. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it, it was very much thinking of people who'd stuck with the series for at least sort of a few books rather than... It, it's not a jumping-in point, is it, at all? No, no, I don't I think say so. It's more, more looking back for people who've been there for a while. Yeah, okie dokie. So, we better score this thing then, mm. really, and then I'll give you some uh, contemporary reviews from the period, and I'll, I will, I'll go first. So, as I say, not entirely convinced by the thing as a whole. Elements of it, fairly enjoyable. It's good McBain writing, a lot of it, but I think I agree with you, Steve. It does feel a little bit like he's occasionally not known where he's going with the stories, and... You know, what we say about spoilers, if you've listened this far, it just it doesn't matter. The Cookie Boy story ends with him just getting on a plane and leaving. Yeah. <laughs> they catch him, he goes on bail, and he just goes away. He goes to work in his family's meatpacking factory in Europe. In London, no less. It's like, <laughs> all right, okay. See ya. <laughs> it's, it just feels like it's... Yeah. I don't know if that's there to sort of reflect the the nature of, well, this does happen, people skip bail... And that you do have a scene with Nellie Brand, which I, mean, I like Nellie Brand as a character. I like when she comes in to sort of play hardball, hardball lawyer with you know these various shifty attorneys that get brought in yeah. uh, with this this guy, the Cookie Boy, saying, "I didn't kill them," and his attorney going, oh, "That's fine, it's fine," and mm-hmm. he's just like, "No, I didn't," and he's like, "No, yes, that's okay, I believe you," <laughs> type stuff. Uh, anyway, that said, I think I'll keep it short and sweet. It, for me, it is a 58 Police Shields book, this one. 58 mm. Police Shields. And I'm going to go to Morgan. Okay, well, I mean, I, I, I do absolutely agree, uh, really, with, with everything you've said there. Although, I, I, I quite like that the Cookie Boy completely escapes. I, I, I think it, it's good to not have everything always wrap up too neatly no, with enough. these things. Um, sure that there are kind of... I mean, maybe flaws in the system, or maybe just you know, it, it, that's how the cookie crumbles sometimes. Oh, uh, it's, it's, uh, you, you, you can't always. It, it, it was it was already. Coming oh God, out that's not the joke. I, why yeah. you wrote it? Is it? Oh it God, could I, well oh, be. I hope not. You, it, it, oh yeah. I'd like to imagine that Ed McBain's got more taste in these matters than me. No, <laughs> um, but I, I, I quite like that that sort of um, unresolved uh, element of it. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be a little bit more generous. I'm going to say 65 police shields. 65. And Steve-O? Yeah. I, I think I would be low 60s. I think it's about a six, six and a little bit out of 10. 62, I think I would, I would go. Splitting the difference. Okay. Yeah. To, Which uh, gives us, with our patented rounding down system, <laughs> uh, 61 police shields for oh, the big we... bad city. Let's see if um, six out of ten is reflected in the some of the contemporary uh, reviews of it from the Times. So our old pal Marilyn Stasio has been writing for the crime section of the New York Times for the last few books we've been doing. Here it is, she says, just in time for those read-for-your-life months in the dead of winter, a new 87th Precinct novel from Ed McBain. It happens to be a good one, too. From its swaggering title to the ending that leaves Steve Carella, the detective, has been on duty in this series since 1956, except he can't be because he's only just turning 40. <laughs> Weak mm. in the knees. 
although he's not above a few non-jokes, although he does give them to his characters rather than just write them into the narrative. Uh, McBain does his usual high-wire act of balancing the tone and content of his separate plot lines, respectful of the nun and a sad little secret, amused by the cookie monster, vengeful towards the psycho. It's not done by brute force either, but with dialogue. When it comes to the voices of this city, McBain is... McBain? McBain is the man with the golden ear. Okay, yeah. We know Marilyn likes him. Anyway. Oh. Uh, a review from the Irish Times. A new 87th Precinct novel is always to be welcomed. Although the 87th Precinct stories must be running towards the 100 at this stage. Not quite. <laughs> Each new instalment seems as fresh as the last. How does McBain, also known as Evan Hunter, do it? Doesn't really say much about no. that. Other than, so. Review from the Kirkus Review which is quite a long one, so I will extract this. Uh, the case of the murdered nun turns into the sort of sober expert, if not exactly dazzling, investigation that McBain could turn out in his sleep. I think I'd agree with that. The cookie boy caper, by contrast, sparkles like a 4th of July skyrocket, then fizzles. <laughs> mm. It's quite similar to our reviews. That yeah. How spoiled has McBain gotten his fans? It's all too easy to forget that his mid-grade adventure of the 87th, his 48th, it's not, it's his 49th, <laughs> continues to set the gold standard for the genre he invented. So, yeah, that does sort of agree with us. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Yeah, and then the Publishers Weekly thing is... Always, well, Publishers Weekly reviews aren't really reviews so much as sort of descriptive things. McBain invests many storylines with off-the-wall humour, a startlingly real cast of suspects and witnesses, and a terrifically entertaining mix of cop dialogue, gritty city atmosphere and action. McBain is so good, he ought to be arrested. And that's the pull quote that we see on loads of the books yeah. there as well. Um, I did mention, actually, on Twitter that there's an audiobook version of this read by the author. Hmm. I think that he only did three himself. And you have to remember he had a load of, like, operations on his throat by this point and I get a feeling perhaps that he just thought you know what if I don't do these now mm. if I don't capture my voice reading my mm. voice yeah. so yeah it's an unabridged version that runs like over six hours of McBain wow. reading this which yeah, right. yeah. would be interesting to hear how he delivers yeah. this sort of story perhaps you know because I think he also does Nocturne as well which is a very different Ooh, story to this wow. one yeah anyway there we have it. That's yes. the big bad city. And the next thing we're moving on to is book 50 in the year 2000, oh. which is The Last Dance, a title I'm sure we'll have to muse on, really. Because, oh. you know, you pick a title like that for your 50th book, you, you do wonder what he was thinking. Yeah. So we'll have to speculate on that for the next one. Mm. Um, but we'll be back with a little bit of a bonus episode to look at book covers and a bit more about 1999 and all the things that went on during it so do join us for that until then i'm going to say goodbye goodbye as will mr morgan brown very well and mr stephen royston <laughs>